Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple data points, we use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor, with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So, this week's episode is going to be entirely devoted to George Soros and his Open Society Foundation. But first, I wanted to talk about what we're going to be doing in next week's episode. We're going to be marking our two-year anniversary of the show, and on that occasion, we thought we'd dedicate the show to listener questions. We've been compiling them now for a while. We haven't addressed them recently, so yeah, we thought we were due. As always, you can leave questions on our website, but I want to make a special note of saying that we'd love to hear if there are any specific episodes of Ones and Twos that you like best. You can reach out to us, as always, on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com or email us at podcast at foreignpolicy.com or you can tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos pod. We're always trying to fine-tune our operation here, and that includes giving you listeners more of what you like. It would be really useful to know if there are specific episodes that you did enjoy. So yeah, please do reach out. So this week's data point is 1.5 billion That is the amount of money distributed every year, give or take a few hundred million, by the Open Society Foundation, which is the philanthropy founded by George Soros. Open Society Foundations, the charity funded by Hungarian-born billionaire George Soros, is pivoting its focus away from European matters. It says it plans to withdraw or terminate large parts of its work within the European Union, shifting its focus to other parts of the world. The organization supports... The recipients of that money may now change, given the recent announcement by OSF that Europe, or at least that part of Europe that's already a part of the European Union, would no longer be a focus of its funding. But we thought this news served as an opportunity to devote a segment to Soros himself. And there's no doubting, of course, that he's an important economic figure of the post-World War II era, a participant in the rise of global financial markets and a theorist about how those markets work, but also a political activist on behalf of liberalism and also the object of conspiracy theories on the right. So Adam, just to start off, I think you've had some dealings with OSF in the past, is that right? Yeah, not just in the past. I mean, doing the research for this segment, I I realized that it's very difficult actually to have had a career on the kind of leftist progressive edge of the social sciences and the humanities since the 1990s without in various ways having had contact with Soros's organization. So one of the first academic conferences I attended was at the Central European University, newly founded, I'm realizing, uh, when I went. And INET, which I'm sure we'll talk about, has had a profound influence on my entire milieu. And I am now uh, recently was asked to serve as, a, as an unpaid advisor 
to the current leadership of OSF on on academic issues. And you just like, you know, as, as controversial and as contentious as this has become, you say yes, because it's an institution which has transformed really the landscape of, yeah, the entire field of economic history and, you know, what's sometimes called heterodox economics. INET in particular has been hugely influential and people can look online, you'll see I've done several interviews with them and have organized it's all on it's all on youtube so yeah no there's absolutely and i think i th i would I'd, I'd be really curious whether there was anyone in who you know with a roughly similar biography to mine who for whom that wasn't true it'd be very interesting actually if there were circuits similar but somehow outside the orbit of well this gen is fundamentally generosity right it's a it's a it's a very substantial amount of funding that arrived that's probably been more influential than any state source of funding for my world. So let's, I guess, maybe try to rewind and see where this, yeah, how this kind of major player came to be in the first place. And I guess I thought I'd start by asking about Soros's own upbringing and, and what kind of economic education might Soros have imbibed during his own upbringing in the kingdom of Hungary, which is where he was born, through the end of World War II when he left continental Europe. I mean, this was a time when it seems like globalization had retreated compared to years earlier and his own family's kind of internationalist ideals, from what I could tell, were really swimming against the current of nationalism at that time. Yeah, I think Soros would be would be quite um, offended, actually, if we started with his economics education, because I think he thinks of himself as a sort of philosopher, savant, and his degree is in philosophy, not in economics. And I think the formative influence of his of his early years is his father's, and for all I know, his mother's, but I mean, the, the person that's always spoken about is his father, who was a notable um, exponent of Esperanto. So Soros grew up, I think, essentially bilingual, probably, I would imagine, at least speaking Hungarian, Esperanto, probably German as well as part of the upper class of, of Hungary of the time. So I think that's probably the by far and away the most influential aspect of his upbringing i mean when he got to london he would give speeches at you know speaker's corner in hyde park in esperanto that's in 46 47 so i guess then to more properly focus on on his intellectual record and his own intellectual uh, life i mean you know a big part of that track record involves applying his philosophical ideas to the economy. I mean, and that's, I do think something that is a theme of this podcast, and I think is true in general, is that the lines between, you know, political thought and intellectual thought and economic thought are not so hard and fast, and that sort of one inevitably bleeds into another. So even something like engaging in Esperanto is sort of has economic implications, even if it's not, into, you know, in terms of its international focus, etc. In any case, at some point, he applies his thinking to financial markets. And Specifically, he develops this theory of reflexivity in terms of a central component of how financial markets work. And I'm curious, how original an idea is this? And, and yeah, I mean, maybe you could unpack what this idea of reflexivity is at all. Well, apparently, the you know people who've been interested in Soros's biography say that this conjunction of ideas came about after he graduated from the LSE and really kind of emerged in the 1950s, which is frankly kind of an interesting moment because it's not perhaps where you might expect this kind of argument to really begin unfolding conceptually because it's the kind of high point of global technocracy and so on. 
But it's an idea that basically couples, Soros always insists that reflexivity is linked in a kind of recursive loop for him with fallibilism. And fallibilism is perhaps the more better known idea about knowledge and human knowledge projects that Karl Popper championed this idea that, you know, the the way in which science progresses is by refutation. And so the real test of a scientific hypothesis is whether it can be refuted. How, how effectively it can be refuted is really the test of whether it's going to generate new knowledge. And what Soros does is to link that claim about knowledge to a claim about the way in which knowledge functions in society. So on the one hand, he says that knowledge is, of course, shaped with our, by our interaction with the real. But on the other hand, because we're not talking here about the cosmos or you know, a purely physical system, we as thinking human agents then use that knowledge to try and change the world. And the, the combination of this circuit, this loop of experience leading to ideas, leading to interaction with the world, reshaping the world, and the underlying frailty of our thinking, which is best thought of as a series of crash tests of ideas that we have for Soros, and this is the key thing, doesn't, as it were, lead in a reconciled, you might say, kind of straightforwardly optimistic way to the best of all possible worlds, but instead leads to constitutive openness, unpredictability, as a feature of reality which social science is conceived in the mode of natural science really struggle to get to grips with. And that, I think, is the core of, of his thought. It, you could locate this in lots of different philosophical traditions. When I read him, he reminds me of a pragmatist, but he doesn't quote the American pragmatists very much. You and I share an enthusiasm for, for them. That's where you you could you could locate it. Instead, he gets caught up in a bunch of distinctions, more typical of you know Central European thinking of the early twentieth century, trying to draw hard lines between the natural world in which physical laws apply and pure popperism play, and the human, the social world in which this reflexivity binds. And so he tries to create a kind of rather dualistic vision of the world. You could think of various analogies, and he's not. He's not a proud man in that sense, right? He's not claiming some radical originality. Whenever he talks about it, he says, look, this is very reminiscent of 1920s and 30s thinking. He always doffs his cap to Popper. But I think the the, the basic impetus here is to cast doubt on excessively optimistic visions of technocratic knowledge. And that's an interesting move to be making in the 1950s. So I see Soros as a pretty, you know, perhaps a popularized applied version of a range of critiques of scientific knowledge and their relevance to the social world that we see coming out of exactly the world that he emerges from. So the Habsburg Empire, you could say, broadly speaking, in its post-imperial form. And I think he would, you know, he wouldn't for a second argue with you about that. I don't think he's, you know, he, he's got plenty of things to worry about other than his, you know, radical um, intellectual originality. Yeah, I mean, it strikes me that may not be original for me or you or for other folks steeped in 20th century thought more generally, but it does seem like there's a countervailing kind of current in thinking about financial markets where there, I mean, you correct me if I'm wrong, but there's also like people who maybe especially at that time or some point in the 20th century arguing that markets were just rational and self-correcting. And and this certainly, I guess, this idea of reflexivity is counter to those ideas. With however, well, 
Yeah. I mean, the difficulty here is that actually, of course, economics spawns the rational expectations revolution. And so it just isn't true to say that expectations, in other words, what he would think of as that reflexive component of thinking and knowledge and anticipation doesn't play a key role in economics. I mean, really, from the 1930s onwards, even in the mainstream of general equilibrium theory with Hicks and people like that, it's absolutely present. The difference, I think, is that for that kind of thinker in the economics tradition, the tendency is to close the thought loop in the direction of equilibrium, stability, and optimality. So Friedman has a famous essay where he defends speculation, which you could think of as George Soros's métier, as stabilizing. Because when speculators see divergences, they act in a way which closes those. And I think you could see Soros as saying, well, yes, maybe, but maybe not. And how do we know and what does it do to the world if we assume that all speculation will be stabilizing? So incorporate your own thought into you know, what, do, what, what happens if we take the rational expectations idea and actually run it on the assumption that indeed the expectations will be rational and consistent and that what we're really doing here is solving for equilibrium, which is itself, of course, another idea which in a sense should be subject to fall- fallibilistic testing. And there's a, you know, subtle and complicated readings of Soros argue whether he in the end is willing to go the whole hog and abandon altogether an effort at comprehensive, rationalistic, quantifiable modelling of the social domain, or whether in the end there isn't a bit of him that actually hankers for a superior and better and more complex model. And that has always been one of the knocks on organisations like INET, which on the one hand uh, engage with support quite a lot of genuinely radical thinking, including a lot of historical work, which doesn't yield modelling and doesn't lend itself to mathematization or mathematical modeling and on the other hand is also backed by luminaries simply of the academic economic left folks like joe stiglitz who are bona fide paid up members of the modeling establishment in a you know rational and reasonable way but within its limits and i think there's always been this this ambiguity because the ambiguity is there in reality right economics is far too clever not to recognize elements of reflexivity it just has this proclivity having recognized them to bend them back into the reconciled equilibrium and optimization kind of framework and it's not altogether obvious how far soros is ultimately willing to break with that okay we're going to take a quick break right here and we'll be back in a second Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I've got the podcast for you. Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast features great guests like Sami Khoury, head of the Canadian Government Centre for Cybersecurity, and Gulsana Mamadieva of the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. Each episode explores the lessons of digital transformation from leaders all around the world. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we are back. So 
Soros obviously made a lot of money off of various financial crises during the 1990s and, and 2000s. And he came under criticism by some political leaders and among others for helping trigger those crises in the first place. And I'm curious, is it fair to criticize him for that? Or is that just fundamentally kind of mistaken? Depends really on how you understand the genesis of a crisis. I think the fair way to describe this is to say that Soros is very clever and indeed preoccupied with to a fault, I think, almost, in looking for fault lines in the global system, which he then seeks to exploit by arbitrage, um, heavily leveraged arbitrage, using his influence in the financial markets to exploit that, those tensions. And in the process, he doesn't shrink from inflicting huge losses on public bodies that are seeking to defend that fragile, flawed status quo that he's decided to you know, put a crosshairs on. So this is a kind of, you could say, a kind of profit-seeking and quite aggressive form of reflexivity. Like, you think the world is one way, I think the world is different. I think I'm more powerful than you in changing this world. Let's see who wins. And that's kind of the game that he's, that he's played. He would no doubt argue that the end state that his interventions produce is in the long run the stable version and, you know, unsustainable things can't last and the sooner they come down, the better – and in the you know in the end state, it might be true that a country with a massively devalued currency, after a sort of speculative attack by somebody like Soros, may be more competitive, um, may you know have a more uh, equilibrated balance of trade because imports have become more expensive and exports have become more competitive. But in the meantime, he's run away with huge profits at the expense of the taxpayer-backed institutions, which vainly attempted to stop him. I speak with some degree of feeling here because my interactions with Soros also include the 1992 moment. So I went to one of his conferences in Budapest and then came back to Germany where I was doing research on a British grant and went to the archive one day and came out of the archive 20% poorer than I was when I started the day because over the course of the day, Soros had leveraged, well, over the course of several weeks, Soros had leveraged a £10 billion position against the overvalued level of the pound. Britain entered the European exchange rate mechanism in 1990 at an elevated exchange rate. Then German unification happened, the Bundesbank raises interest rates, the pound becomes less and less sustainable. The Bank of England pushes interest rates up to 15%, strangling. I mean, this is in a society with millions of people on flexible rate mortgages. So huge pressure. And at some point, the Bank of England, after having spent billions of dollars to prop the pound up against Soros's bet, abandons the effort, leaving him with a profit of, of roughly speaking, a billion dollars in profit on the deal. The logic of this is you know, quite simple. If you if you see an exchange rate which is being defended by a government, a fixed exchange rate which you think is overvalued, you know what it makes sense to do is to bet that the currency will fall because in due course it must fall because it's overvalued. It makes even more sense to borrow as much as you can of the overvalued currency and then sell it and to do so very publicly and very loudly saying, with this sale, I hope to bring about as quickly as possible the reduction in the value of this currency, which I've just borrowed, because when it falls in value, you can then swap back out of dollars back into the pound and repay the loans that you took in pounds at a very considerable profit, right? Because the pounds will be much cheaper in dollars. So borrow 10 billion pounds, 
sell them for dollars at the current exchange rate, which where you get, you know, 295 or whatever. This was the Deutsche Mark actually at the time for, for the pound. And then when the pound falls at a much better exchange rate, swatch back and pay off your debts. And if you announce this and you're Soros and you're well known and you do this on a large enough scale, there really isn't anything a government can do because what the end the government and its reserves end up attempting to do is to bet against the combined credit capacity of the market, which is gigantic. So the struggles over exchange rates in this period in the 80s and early 90s were epic and involved these incredibly punitive interest rate hikes. And that's what Soros does. And there was another famous incident in the late 90s, which really earned him his fearsome reputation in Asia. He was known as the crocodile. The Malaysian prime minister branded him as such because he made a huge bet against the Hong Kong dollar. And the Hong Kong authorities, with the backing of Beijing, actually warded him off. They stuck interest rates up sky high. They mobilized all the resources of the People's Bank of China, which stepped in to back the Hong Kong Monetary Authority. And Soros lost that. But in the meantime, the the Hong Kong economy suffered a huge blow from massively elevated interest rates, which had to be raised as high as they were to stop people borrowing and engaging in this speculative bet. Because if the interest rate is sky high and the devaluation which you're trying to produce doesn't transpire, then you're setting on a huge loss from the interest that you owe on the you know, in the case of the the British thing, 10 billion pounds you borrowed. If the interest rate stays low, then you can you can swallow it. But if the interest rate is hundreds of percent, then of course you're in real trouble. And 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 Soros actually made a pretty substantial loss on that Hong Kong speculation. So it was a real battle. He's a he's an antagonistic, aggressive player of global instabilities. But he would, of course, claim the instabilities are not his. He doesn't create them in the first place. But when he sees the instability, he it's kind of a bond vigilante idea, really. But this is a he mainly does this in the exchange rate markets where private sector actors act as enforcers of a kind of rationality which public authorities are refusing to recognize. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, vigilante sounds could be pejorative, but I'm sure this fits into his more idealistic concept of a open society in some way that, you know, he's providing information <laughs> to markets and the world of politics by seeing these vulnerabilities and acting on them. And and yeah, sure enough, the money he's earned through his financial career, he's plowed into philanthropic efforts, including the Open Society Foundation that have been support in support of what he calls an open society, which yeah includes the kinds of financial markets and free markets that we've been talking about, but also various other political ideals, including democracy. And I'm curious, yeah, how coherent do you think this concept of an open society is that's at the heart of Soros's philanthropic efforts? And just as a general guide for philanthropy, how does this compare with the approach taken by other big philanthropists, say Bill Gates or the group of people we've talked about called the effective altruists? I mean, how does Soros's approach to philanthropy compare with, with those efforts? I think the cliche would be that the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation does mosquito nets and maternal health, and Soros does the Open Society Foundation, universities, progressive media, and the Institute for New Economic Thinking, this INET thing I've referred to a couple of times. And the Central European University that was set up in Budapest has now subsequently moved to Vienna, which opened in 1991, you know, was probably the most grandiose example of this, you know, as a big backer of Bard, which functions in Berlin as a as a major hub for Central and Eastern European graduate education. So, I mean, there's a there's a real difference there. And indeed, I think through 
in Soros's vision, the idea is to use his immense wealth to fund a exactly as you put it. I thought that I thought that link you made just then between his market activity and his politics is is really spot on. You know, a kind of open, flexible, adaptable, modern, reflexive society. And this open society idea is another one of these sort of somewhat quicksilver kind of concepts that are moving their way through the world, you know, in the 30s, 40s and 50s. And Karl Popper, again, you know, is, is the person that popularizes the idea with his Cold War tract, um, the open society and its and its enemies. But the idea actually originates with Henri Bergson, the, the French vitalist and, you know, really profoundly influential thinker of time from the turn of the century. And I think you can kind of mark out three different positions here with sort of Bergson, Popper and Soros, both in terms of chronology with Bergson being located in the early 20th century, Popper in the mid-century and Soros still alive and kicking, but also in sort of the the nature of their conception of open society. You ask about its coherence. But for Bergson, I mean, following from the French anthropological and sociological tradition with Durkheim, the open society is kind of a challenge, right? Open society for him is an effect of the universalism of modern religions, which is profoundly destabilizing to, to for want of a better word, traditional tribal societies, which satisfied certain basic preconditions of stability. And to an extent, Bergson's sympathy was therefore with closure, with stability, whilst at the other hand, recognizing that modern consciousness, the modern world, and indeed modern religion couldn't exist without the incredible allure of the universal. So Bergson has a really ambiguous view of open and closed societies with a tendency, as it were, to feel the attraction of closure and a kind of acceptance of, and an, you know, in a sense, a thinking within the vision of openness that emerges with modern history and and modern religion. With Popper, we move into a kind of more politicized version of this same sort of dichotomy. And I think it's important to emphasize that with Popper, the question is fundamentally going linked to his his philosophy of knowledge, his epistemology, his thinking about how we think. And the idea is that the societies which have gotten the virus, the bug of fallibilism in a sense, you know, the question is what is the sociological setting in which that unfolds most propitiously, most dynamically, and what are the countervailing forces it unleashes? And so Popper sides emphatically with openness over closure and associates closure and notably the political forms which come, you know, literally years after Bergson wrote, the forms of totalitarianism and fascism, Stalinism, so on, as atavistic political expressions of the tendency to draw society back into the temptations of closure and, and escaping the existential perils of, of openness, which are real, because fallibilism is a kind of terrifying idea. And in Soros, I think the whole thing flips into a more upbeat, more optimistic kind of vision, more familiar to us, a little bit more Fukuyama-esque, in which the combination of open societies, free media, free discourse, scientific debate, reflexivity, and capitalism, they all go together as a package, as a positive package. Um, They still have enemies, but there is a kind of, and you can think about the, after all, the 30s and 40s were a period in which that liberal capitalist formula failed, and Popper was writing in the aftermath of that, Hayek too, by the way, 
For Soros, on the other hand, as it were, there is this more upbeat kind of story. But it's not. I mean, it's it's messy and it's shifted meaning over time, but it's a powerful set of ideas that, you know, even if we couldn't define it, we probably recognize it when we saw it. This kind of thinking is is very hegemonic in everyday commentary on on the world. And Soros has this strong bias towards, yeah, dynamism, openness, change. Exactly the the excellent kind of move that you were making to say, yeah, my speculation is really just about providing society with more knowledge about itself. <laughs> like, you know, and watch me get extraordinarily rich in the pro- in the process. You know, about, and for all these sort of subtle distinctions between you know different notions of open society, I think we should also recognise, and it's probably important also for understanding the future direction of the OSF that that distinction between you know Soros is doing the ideas part and the Gates is doing mosquito nets is really is you know at some level quite fatuous because the Soros foundations have been very active in various types of social entrepreneurialism as well in public health and um, only just recently actually we partnered with the Gates Foundation in backing um, a social enterprise that's engaged in trying to roll out affordable diagnostic, you know, essentially lateral flow tests for not just COVID, but various types of tropical disease. So I think, you know, though at some level, there's a kind of archetypal distinction between between these two philanthropic visions in practice, um, Soros's money has also flowed to a very considerable extent into those kinds of more technological visions or business visions, you might say, of, of changing the world. And under the new leadership, I think it's quite likely that 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 tendency will, I don't know whether it'll be reinforced, but it's certainly not going to go away. Yeah, no, no, that's certainly, I mean, it's out, first of all, I didn't know the connection to Bergson, so that's that's new to me. But yeah, it sounds like the narrative you're describing, there was a kind of like gradual loss of kind of sociological depth in in terms of... I don't know. It's it's, it's also something more to... I mean, they both Popper and um, Soros pay lip service to Bergson as a predecessor, but don't really engage with him in a serious way. So I think what's really clear is that the mood shifts very dramatically from a kind of reluctant admission that openness is something we have to deal with, we can't do otherwise, to a emphatic embrace in Soros. I think that's the you know, perhaps the most fundamental shift. And also a shift from the total preoccupation with religion in Bergson, because the book is co- is about like the drivers of re- religiosity to, to a thoroughly secular vision in Soros. So finally, I wanted to ask whether these economic and political theories of Soros's that we've been discussing, whether they have any kind of geopolitical vision that's implicit in them as well. I mean, what exactly is the theory that Soros has for how this global order, this open society that he imagines should be maintained? I mean, does he support the use of military force in service of this open society? I guess maybe another way of asking this is, is Soros a military hawk in behalf of liberalism or more of a dove? As far as I'm able to tell, and, and you know, God only knows there are loads of Soros experts out there and, you know, I hope I don't get this wrong. But but the way I read his international politics is as more consistently internationalist and cosmopolitan than that. And I mean, he's been no friend of American military intervention. He was a notable critic of the war on terror, which he regarded as as a fallibilist uh, dead end. American society allowed itself to be sucked into a friend-enemy distinction, to declare terrorism to be a matter of war, 
and this was a disastrous, disastrous uh, misfire. He he was a serious critic of of the Bush presidency. Bet very heavily on Kerry and was profoundly disappointed by that outcome. I think the the bottom line is that Soros is truly, you know, a global international cosmopolitan capitalist who for whom the ideal would be the withering away of nation states and their replacement by an adequate in his mind global political form i think the critics of soros hit a you know hit a kernel of truth in making this kind of claim about his underlying thinking there's a there's a very good essay by Daniel Bessner in The Guardian from a few years back, which really summarizes his trajectory in those terms. One of the motivations possibly for his assault on the British peg in uh, pound peg in 1992 was, you know, he would argue, I think, to kind of reveal the unsustainability of the independent pound and the need to drive it into the euro. So this goes back to your point about how you know, financial markets reveal underlying truths. Many people would disagree with him about that. And since then, the pound has, has avoided the sort of crises that he helped to precipitate. But I think that's his, his underlying position. But it goes hand in hand with a kind of hope of large-scale action. So I think a major moment of disillusionment for him was the failure of the West to set up with really large-scale publicly funded support for the post-communist transition societies in Eastern Europe. He was doing a lot privately. And there's a real sense, I think, that he sees a major historical, you know, failure at that moment that on the one hand, as it were, you might say, confirms the lack of confidence in large state action, but on the other hand, also also points to the need, presumably, to focus on other sources of support and dynamism in the world that, that are more reliable than the state. To sort of sharpen the point about hawkery, in the early 2000s, there were these moments of profound disillusionment with the United States where he actually begins to talk very seriously about state capitalism as a kind of alternative, not necessarily a preferable alternative, but a powerful and historically significant alternative to the market model of the West. And since 2016, now fast forwarding a bit, he's caught on the one hand between hostility to Donald Trump and his increasingly aggressive politics towards China. And on the other hand, his own quite aggressive claims about the fragility of the Chinese currency. Again, it's it's currency politics that get him into trouble. In 1516, he basically thought the Chinese were on the point of seeing because they have a pegged currency. And he thought that this was a moment when the Chinese currency peg was going to blow. He can't speculate heavily against it because the Chinese have quite effective capital controls in place. And but this attracted to Soros the undying hostility of Chinese trolls and the Chinese Chinese government, who began to regard him at this point as a menace. There's a lot of really virulent anti-Semitic diatribes against Soros in China. There's on, on the one hand a fascination with the so-called sort of tribal economic and commercial success of the Jews, and on the other hand, also a so-called, of course, and then on the other hand, like this vitriolic um, denunciations of Soros as a as a as a global you know the leader of a global conspiracy and then in 2021 a full pivot so that he actually engages in rather aggressive criticism of players like BlackRock who continue to make significant investments in China and want to do so and Soros goes into the pages of both the journal the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times to attack them on the grounds that they're naive about the fundamental direction of Chinese society. And he's now, I think, you know, explicit about the fact that he regards Xi Jinping as the major global threat to the open society. So it's been a it's been an incredible trajectory, which he, I think, at this point in his life, 
is a very old man after all, looks on in really quite a tragic way. I mean, there is all of this analytic of how modern the modern world functions, but also, after all, a narrative about its development. And I think what's really dramatically changed here is the narrative from one of comparative optimism to one at this point of really, he has this vision of the world, you know, destroying civilization by means of climate change, whilst the two rival systems battle each other for global hegemony. Yeah, I mean, you could describe it as a tragedy or just the start of a new optimistic narrative. I guess it almost sounds like the beginning of a new Cold War, which obviously the open society advocates were pretty comfortable with, right? At that, in the post-war period and thinking about the Soviet Union as totalitarian and not an open society and maybe... Yeah, China's just filling in that role in that philosophy these days. But this has been a pretty comprehensive talk about Soros's vision. But we do need to end it here for now. But yeah, maybe we'll return to some parts of this later on. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Claudia Tady, Laura rossbrow Tellum, Rob Sachs, and Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested in news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Listeners to Ones and Twos even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code TWOS at checkout. That's T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love getting your feedback. You can leave voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com or email us podcast at foreignpolicy.com or you can tweet us that's at ones and twos pod thanks very much for listening and we'll be back in your feed next week politics has never been stranger or more online which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts.